Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Stephanie Ruffi, who is Professor of Philosophy and Head of the Philosophy, Practices, and Languages Research Laboratory at Université Grenoble-Alpes. Her new book, Scientific Pluralism Reconsidered, A New Approach to the Disunity of Science, is just out from University of Pittsburgh Press. The idea that the sciences can't be unified that there will never be a single theory of everything, is by now a bit of an orthodoxy in philosophy of science, and in many sciences as well. But different versions of pluralism present different views of what exactly they are pluralistic about in science, and about why sciences cannot be unified, and what the failure of unification entails about the world and about our knowledge of the world. In her book, Rufi untangles a number of different issues within the pluralist camp, arguing for a foliated pluralism in ontology and the interest relativity of knowledge claims and our representations of the world to historical features and our epistemic interests. She also critically examines anti-reductionist arguments um, and both the generality of their conclusions and the support they may seem to provide for inferences to the disorder of the world. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Stephanie Rufi, are you there? Yes, hello. Uh, hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. I'm very happy to be talking to you about um, your new book, Scientific Pluralism Reconsidered. Um, and I, I'd like to start out with a few words um, about your own background um, in terms of uh, how you came to become a philosopher um, and how you got into the areas you did and how you came to write this particular book. Okay. So actually, my, my background was initially in, uh, in science and technology. And so I, I first graduated as an engineer, and uh, then I got a first PhD in astrophysics in Paris. Uh, I worked on the structure and evolution of the galaxy. But at the same time, I was very interested in, uh, in philosophy. And so I started studying philosophy uh, in addition to my scientific studies. And so I studied philosophy for five years, but it was at that time mainly history of philosophy, because in France, that's what you get mainly in the university. Mm-hmm. So um, after five years, uh, I was finishing my PhD in astrophysics, so I had to make up my mind and choose because I couldn't do both anymore at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I had to make a choice, you know, astrophysics or philosophy. And um, I took a break. I worked in the private sector for a while, and then I decided to go on with philosophy, and I applied to a PhD program in the States. 
and I was lucky to be accepted at Columbia. So I moved to the States and I got a second PhD uh, in philosophy at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite, um, quite naturally, given my background in science, I specialized in philosophy of science at that time. And when I arrived at Columbia, I was supposed to do philosophy of physics. But then um, Philip Kitcher arrived at Columbia at that time, and I got interested in other uh, branches of philosophy of science. And I was attracted more by, you know, a broader question about the sciences rather than, you know, specializing in philosophy of physics. Mm. And uh, so I started, and, and so I started working in general philosophy of science during my PhD. And uh, because I was interested in uh, general question about science, I got interested in the the question of the articulation between different branches of science. And this is uh, at that moment I started to write, you know, papers about well-known philosophers like Cartwright or Dupré who wrote about uh, the plurality of science and the relationship between the various branches of science. And that's how I started writing on these topics. Mm-hmm. And I was especially uh, interested in uh, basic issues like what can you learn about the, the world from science once you reject a unified view of science? And so I started writing uh, papers on specific dimension of this broad question. And then I thought uh, maybe I should try to articulate these various uh, specific uh, takes on the issue and write a book about the question of unity, of disunity of science in general, right. just not specific aspects. So that's why, how I came to write this book. Uh, good. Also, it's a very topical question because, um, uh, you know, it's as you as you put it, the, the disunity of science, I mean, Philosophy of science, of course, as as you very nicely begin the book by looking at Carnap and the logical positivists, or, or Carnap in particular, and of course, you know, people coming from philosophy of science, that's kind of the, you know, we all we all get that before we start to reject all the pieces of it, and um, as you mentioned, I mean, Cart or Nancy Cartwright and John Dupre, I mean, these were, you know, important among the important figures in terms of rejecting that whole view and promoting disunity, the disunity view. Um, uh, but, um, and, and at this point, the, the idea of pluralism of, or disunity um, is, is, is kind of an orthodoxy. I mean, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of where it is. But there's a lot of, you know, kind of open questions that you, that you consider here um, about different, you know, what exactly we can you know, why it is that, you know, what it is that isn't disunified, why it is, and, and what those implications are. So I, I think it's it's nice to have in a, uh, a fairly tidy package <laughs> uh, uh, a sort of consideration of, of, you know, what is this, you know, scientific pluralism, what, what are the best views within it, um, and, um, you know, what are the best defenses of, of those views. So... Um, one of the one of, well before before we you know I want to I want to get each of the the various pluralisms that you discuss in the book. Um, uh, but this uh, I also noticed um, that this is okay. So this is in English now. Um, uh, so it's been translated from the French. Um, 
but it's also been revised and augmented from the French. And so I was just wondering if you could say a bit about, you know, what the areas of the book were that you felt, you know, in the in the translation process, you know, where you kind of, uh, you know, worked further, uh, you know, in in the presentation of your view in the in the English edition. Yes. So the the major revision was concerned the, the introduction and the conclusion. It was completely rewritten because the, the, the tradition, the style when you in French, when you write a book, is, is not to write a long introduction which will spell out the content of the book. So I had to really think about the introduction and conclusion uh, with a new, uh, a fresh uh, look at it. And uh, also, uh, I benefited from uh, nice... Uh, reviews from uh, anonymous reviewers from uh, my publisher. And that was very helpful to help uh, better articulate the three main parts of the book. So this is another, I think, improvement on the French version. The three parts are better articulated and uh, put together. I think it's more coherent in the English version. I added some transition and articulation, which which was very implicit in the French version. Mm-hmm. So to that extent, the book was augmented by uh, those uh, transitions and articulations. And I hope the English version is, is more like, coherent. The three parts are more coherent. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it, it certainly is coherent. I mean, I, more <laughs> coherent, I, I, can't, I can't assess since I haven't, I haven't read the French one. But um, <laughs> so you do, you know, it's, it's, it's divided into three main areas of of controversy um one is the uh uh what you call the languages objects and and methods and you know sort of the main question there is you know are there different kinds of things that can only be known in different sorts of ways um and uh uh you know sort of discussing you know starting again from from the from carnap um you cut you you discuss it uh, and ultimately, of course, you come out with your own view of, you know, answer is no, and you give your own view. Um, so maybe you could uh, explain a bit um, uh, the, I guess, the the Carnapian, you know, to start where you start, the, the Carnapian form of pluralism, you know, that you articulate kind of clearly, and then where, you know, contemporary pluralists have, have rejected that view. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, because it could be a bit surprising to go back to the Vienna Circle in a book which is mainly about current forms of scientific pluralism. But uh, so my purpose was certainly not to contribute to the uh, very rich scholarship in the history of philosophy of science that focuses on the Vienna Circle. But I, I was um, motivated by the fact, by the motivation for uh, the defense of the unity of science in the, by the logical positivist, and which is very well known, which is that the, um, the idea that unity of science, uh, defending the unity of science is the way of defending cooperation between scientists. So I like this motivation a lot. But apart from that, I thought also it was very interesting to uh, recall the answer of Carnap to the question you mentioned, there are different ways of uh, uh, knowing uh, different objects, you know. And uh, what was interesting for me is that uh, Carnap 
defended the unity of the object domain of science at the same time and with appealing by appealing to some kind of pluralism which was his linguistic pluralism and this linguistic pluralism was uh, goes hand in hand with uh, his principle of tolerance which states which is very well known and which states that uh, you know, in logic, uh, everyone is at liberty to build up his own logic and his own form of language. So what was interesting in Carnap is that adopting a linguistic framework to reconstruct all scientific sentences, which was the project of Carnap, uh, it's a free choice, which is guided only by pragmatic consideration. And given this principle of tolerance, so the the project of reconstructing scientific sentences works together with a plurality of possible unification because you can choose different linguistic framework to do that. Mm-hmm. And so this, uh, and so also we should, uh, I should specify that this kind of linguistic pluralism, this Carnap's linguistic pluralism, is exclusive and synchronic to the extent that you cannot work in more than one linguistic framework. So it's, it's a bit like uh, Kuhn's paradigm, you know, and it's also synchronic to the extent that you can uh, not work with, uh, yes, as I said, many linguistic framework at the same time. So now the question is, how is, that, how is this pluralism compatible with Carnap's ambition to establish ontological unity, which seems to be a bit uh, intention at first sight? Mm-hmm. And that's why it really gets interesting, I think, because the, the idea, Carnap's idea is that the, Carnap's idea is that what, what, what matters in this unity program, what matters is to be able to reconstruct uh, all scientific sentences within a unique framework. And if you succeed doing that, then all differences in terms of epistemic access will be eliminated so that the object studied by the sciences will belong to the same domain, but they will belong to the same domain, not in the traditional ontological sense of the existence of, you know, only one sort of thing, like only uh, material things or only ideas or things like that, but it will it it will uh, it will uh, it will uh, it will to the extent that everything that can be said about these objects can be said in the same language within the same linguistic framework and consequently it will lend itself to the same type of empirical justification, and that's how you get this unity of the object domain of science within a pluralistic uh, framework, which is the, pr- uh, the pluralist plurality of linguistic framework. And I, f- I found this, uh, this uh, association of uh, ontological unity in a special Carnapian sense and a plurality very interesting in, in, uh, in Carnap's work. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, hadn't really, you know, thought of, thought of his, you know, the, the linguistic questions, the external, ex- internal questions, you know, as itself a form of a form of pluralism. But it does, it does sort of make sense. Um, um, but then, of course, I mean, nowadays, you know, there is what you what you call the the double divorce. I mean, this idea that uh, 
you can, uh, you know, kind of the the very sharp distinction between what philosophers of science are doing and then what the sciences are doing, um, you know, the, the practices of science. I mean, that, you know, kind of just started to fall apart uh, with, uh, you know, I suppose with Kuhn, but, you know, I'm sure there were other uh, influences as well uh, that, you know, you just – that that – you know, complete separation has has totally been destroyed since then. Um, and also, you mentioned the, um, of course, the logical positivists had this distinction between the uh, context of discovery and then the context of justification and their empirical, uh, you know, empiricist, I should say, justifications for that um, distinction. Um, so can you say a bit about, you know, in that breakdown of the logical positivist orthodoxy into the current view, um, uh, how, you know, how did, how did pluralism, you know, come into the picture, I guess is the question. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, you mentioned this uh, divorce, 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 yeah. <laughs> between, uh, between, which is actually the, uh, a separation between two uh, conception, two views of the notion of unity of method. Because you have first a logical version of the notion of unity of method, which is uh, the, ex- the idea that there exists only one logic of justification. And you have another version of the idea of unity of method, which is the idea that there is only one best way of finding, finding out about the world which means there is only one uh, method, one, one, one way to elaborate and project scientific results, for instance, by induction or by abduction or whatever. And the fact is that uh, recently, oh, philosophers of science, or at least in the, even in the, for, for a while now, philosophers of science has been mainly concerned with the logical version of the unity of method. This is the case uh, since Mill, and it's even uh, more the case for Popper and the logical positivists. But if you think about what happened before, the, the, the analysis of processes of discovery in science was not entirely separated from the analysis of processes of validation. So the, the, two, the two sides of the notion of method uh, work together. But after proper and the logical positivists, the focus was exclusively on logic of justification, mm-hmm. and that's why that that's that's why I found uh, the notion of style of scientific reasoning, Hacking's notion of style of scientific reasoning, very rich and potentially very uh, interesting because the the very notion of style uh, mixes the two dimensions logic of justification and ways of finding out about the world. So it's a way to uh, uh, reconcile the, the two dimensions of the notion of methods and to think about unity of, of uh, methodological unity without separating the two dimensions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, you, you uh, towards the end of that chapter, you kind of turn to... Um, uh, Hacking, you know, Ian Hacking's views, um, mm-hmm. where you have different styles uh, styles of scientific reasoning, which um, uh, and you build on that view to kind of present your own your own view of the 
you know, how we should answer the question about, you know, pluralism of, of ontologies and so forth. Um, and you call your view a, a foliated pluralism. So maybe you can uh, explain a bit about, you know, this, this notion of, of styles of scientific reasoning and then, and then how, and how, it, um, uh, how you develop it in your own view of, of pluralism. Yeah, I started. I started working on the Hacking's notion of style of scientific reasoning because I thought it was very interesting. It, it includes both an ontological dimension, because Hacking says that style create objects, and maybe I can explain that a little bit I later. Hope so. Yeah, <laughs> and also in the same notion, you find a methodological dimension in the justificatory sense to the extent as Hacking says, that styles develop their own standard of validity. So in, in, in the very concept of styles of scientific reasoning, you have these two dimensions, ontological and uh, justificatory, methodologically justificatory. So what does that mean for Hacking, that uh, styles uh, create objects? I think, I mean, Hacking just give examples of creation of object by the different styles he analyzes. And he draws on, on the work of the historian of science, Alistair Crombie. So for instance, if you consider the statistical style, which is a very widespread in science today. So the, the, statist, the statistical style will int introduces, for instance, and I take Hacking's example here. It introduces, for instance, populations characterized by their mean and the deviation. Mm. If you consider another example of style, for instance, the mathematical style of postulation, it introduces abstract objects, such as, you know, complex numbers of sets. If you consider another uh, very widespread style, which is the laboratory style, it often introduces unobservable entities, such as electrons or atoms. And so, what Hacking says is that those kinds of objects are created by a style to the extent that they did not exist before this time came into being. So it's not very easy to understand what he means exactly by that. So in other words, how exactly should we understand that these objects introduced by a style exist? Is there, uh, and the question I asked is, uh, is there mode of existence uh, of the same sort of the mode of existence of unproblematic things like, uh, say, a flower or a star. Right. And actually, Hacking doesn't really answer this question. <laughs> and he rather points out, to escape this question, so to speak, he rather points out to the fact that the, these, when a star comes into being, it opens a specific ontological debate. And the examples he gives are, I think, very convincing. For instance, he mentioned the fact that uh, when the mathematical style introduced uh, objects like uh, numbers, the question, the, the ontological question, the ontological new debate is, do numbers, I knew it's, it's an old debate in philosophy, but do numbers exist outside the mind of mathematicians? So that's an ontological debate. Mm -hmm. Another example is with the laboratory style, you know, when uh, uh, the laboratory style introduces unobservable entities like uh, electrons. So it opens up 
an ontological debate, which is very well known, which is a realism versus anti-realism debate. So Hacking ex ex escapes this question by, you know, just pointing out that introducing an object, while introducing an object, a style opens up a debate. But then I was uh, interested in the, question, the following question. Okay, styles introduce objects, but there are many objects in the world which are already the object of scientific inquiries, like forest fires, stars, and all that. Right. So my question was, okay, how do you articulate those objects introduced by a style with the objects already studied by the sciences, like a star or forest fire? And that's, that's how I came to the notion of ontological enrichment and then to my foliated pluralism. So maybe I can say a word about... Uh, yeah, because that's, I mean, that's kind of the critical issue right there is, you know, you've got all these, well, I mean, from a from a naive point of view, we, we have all these objects and they existed even, at least we thought they existed, you know, if you're going to be a realist, um, mm -hmm. well before science began. And now you have scientific styles, but, you know, it seems like there's two classes of objects, those that are introduced by styles and those that are not. And, um, uh, you know, how, how are these things related, you know, and, and, and why think, I suppose, that the ones that, you know, why think one class, one class seems to be uh, somehow ontologically inferior to the other, or maybe it's not. I mean, I, that's, that's a question, really. But uh, Hacking's view does seem to make this distinction between, I mean, he does have the between the uh, uh, objects that are not introduced by styles and objects that are. Yeah, actually, Hacking doesn't really uh, doesn't really address this question of the articulation of these two types of objects. So yeah. I try I try to fill this gap by proposing this notion of ontological enrichment. And so my my my, my suggestion is that uh, when a style of scientific reasoning introduces a new kind, a new kind of entity, like uh, the object introduced by a style. So th this entity does not simply add further to the uh, existing scientific objects, mm -hmm. independently mm -hmm. of the objects already studied by scientists. So what I mean is that it's not like there are stars, dogs, electrical phenomena to which styles would add the class of viable stars or the species Canis lupus or the electron. Mm. So rather what I suggest is that the introduction of new kinds of entities by a style gives rise to an, an, an ontological enrichment of the object studied by science to the extent that the use in scientific practice of different styles of reasoning uh, widen diversify the classes of propositions that can be true or false about them. And maybe I can give an example to, to, to make that more concrete. Yeah. So think about, um, for instance, uh, galaxies, you know, which has been studied by astrophysicists for a while now. So the idea is that uh, when astrophysicists started to use the style of hypothetical modeling, they added various models of galaxies especially models of the Milky Way. 
And so by doing that, they're extending the types of propositions that can be formulated about the galaxies. For instance, they added propositions about physical parameters that were not observationally accessible, but using those models made them accessible. So, And also the statistical style has introduced in astrophysics populations of galaxies which were characterized by various statistical parameters. So if you think this way, you can define the idea that the coming into being of stars, the use of new stars in a given branch of science lead, lead to an enrichment of the object under study. And this is my notion of ontological, ontological enrichment. Okay. Um, so oh, maybe, well, yeah. maybe I, I, let me just add that. Sure. Uh, th th this process is uh, It's important to see that this process of ontological enrichment is an open-ended process. To the extent that uh, a, a new style of scientific reasoning may emerge in the future, which will bring new entities that will add ontologically to the object under study. So it's it's an open-ended process. This ontological enrichment process. Okay. Um, so let me just, I mean, because as you're, you know, explaining that, I was thinking, well, I mean, so we started with the Carnapian idea of, you know, many languages, one ontology, kind of. Um, and, uh, you know, I was just wondering how, you know, if, if styles are giving ontological enrichment of, uh, in terms of more, ways of talking about, you know, so like in the statistical style, you have, you know, populations, whether it's stars or, or species of various, you know, animals and, and so forth. Um, uh, but I, I suppose I'm wondering what is gained by uh, saying these are, these, this is ontological enrichment as opposed to conceptual or linguistic or, you know, other, another type of enrichment, but not, but not an ontological enrichment. And, and do you see what I'm, because, you know, Carnap might just say, oh, no, 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 you're just, you're just articulating kind of my view in a, in a somewhat different way. Um, uh, you know, he he might you know somebody defending Carnot might might say something like that, and I'm I'm just wondering, uh, where does the ont ontological enrichment come about? Yeah, I think yeah, it's important to it's important to see that the notion of ontological enrichment does not boil down to the notion of descriptive enrichment. Okay, because yeah, I think it's, it was what you point you you were pointing at yeah. because. The use of a new style of scientific reasoning does not simply amount to grasp more aspects of a given object. So, for instance, if you take a model of the climate today, a model of the climate, the Earth climate today, does incorporate more components that the climate model say in in the seventies, but. This is not what's going on here, because this will be only descriptive enrichment. Mm -hmm. So here we can talk about ontological enrichment, because that means taking seriously this idea, the hacking's idea that styles create new objects, yeah. and that style mm -hmm. adds certain entities to the object. And 
if you take that seriously, that also means that to some extent you adopt an internalist uh, approach of ontology because your ontology, and that's where there are some very, uh, some similarity with Carla, but not so many, <laughs> because uh-huh. uh, your ontology, ontological features of an object are not given independently of the cognitive tools you use to uh, uh, know the object. So when you say, when you take seriously Hacking's idea that style adds certain entities to the object, you have to buy, uh, to a certain extent, an internalist uh, approach of ontology to the, because you have to buy the idea that certain ontological features mm. of an object do not exist independently of the style mm-hmm. or inside the style. Okay, so so let me look, just right to pay, uh, if you may say. Yeah, which, uh, uh, a basic realist uh, take on ontology. Yeah, so one of the feature I don't you, you know, there's different features or characteristics that you you mentioned about foliated pluralism, but I don't I want to um, so uh, you know just kind of focusing on one of those you 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 one of the things that you mentioned is. And this is directly in contrast with the Carnapian view. So it would it would it, it would help to further clarify the difference. Is that you claim that the the foliated pluralist view um, is is non-exclusive, as opposed to the exclusivity of his view. So maybe you could say a bit about that characteristic of, yes. of the view. Yeah. Yeah. It it simply uh, refers to the fact that a scientific inquiry about a given object or phenomenon often combine simultaneously several styles of scientific reasoning. So if, if you study a forest fire or a galaxy, to take simple examples, you, you usually use more than one style. Uh-huh. You, you can do the statistical style, the modeling style, the, the lab style, laboratory style. So, uh, so that's why uh, you have this non-exclusiveness by contrast with Carnap's uh, linguistic framework, because you combine very often, you, you combine in a scientific inquiry, you combine uh, different styles. Okay. Um, yeah, that seems like a very important um, feature, particularly for given Carnap or Carnap's original motivation that you mentioned before about um, uh, com- promoting you know, communication between the sciences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, how, let's, uh, you know, talking about relationships between the sciences. Um, so in, in the, in chapter two, you turn to the issue of, of inter-theoretic relations and, and in particular the, the, the very big issue of, of reduction or not. Um, and, uh, you know, there the question is, you know, is basically is is reductionism true? I mean, can can theories, uh, you know, be reduced to ultimately one, you know, theory of everything? I suppose. Um, but even if you can't have one theory of everything, can you at least have many, you know, so maybe local reductions or something? Um, so it, there's a lot a very interesting conversation conversation there that you have with uh, traditional anti-reductionist views like, like Kitcher or, or Fodor. Um, and you, uh, uh, you argue, uh, 
you know, that these uh, views don't, that they rely on certain undefended metaphysical positions. Um, and you also questioned further on the idea that that if there is introduction, that you get to uh, this sort of uh, uh, disunified, um, you know, da- the dappled world of, of Cartwright or, or the disorder of things of, of Dupre. So there's, you know, t- two different issues that you talk about separately. So we can take them one at a time. Is, you know, one was the your critique of the traditional non-reductionists or anti-reductionists, um, and the second was the critique of, you know, some of the conclusions that are drawn in terms of what the world is like if it if reduction is false. So maybe you can start with your your criticisms of the sort of traditional. You know, maybe Fodor, Kitcher type uh, anti-reductionist views. Okay, so maybe I should mention first that w- w- when you discuss reductionism, you, you and this is the, the the reason why I was not very happy with uh, uh, Kitcher's or Fodor's uh, conclusion. Well, when you discuss reductionism, you, you can adopt a descriptive approach. That is, you can be interested in. Uh, local, so to speak, local inspections of inter-theoretic relations between uh, theories in different branches of science. So you're going to ask whether a given theory is reducible or not to another theory at a given time of the history of the disciplines involved, mm-hmm. in what precise sense of the notion of reduction. If, if, you, if you adopt this kind of descriptive approach, then your uh, analysis remains internal to science to the extent that the conclusions you're going to give about the reducibility or non-reducibility remain dependent on a given epistemic context and on the particular notion of reduction you adopt. But if you consider uh, Fodor's or Kitcher's approach, it's very unlike this descriptive approach to the extent that those anti-reductionist arguments, like Fodor's or Kitcher's, they appear, by contrast, uh, like hanging over science, like external to science, to the extent that their conclusions aim to remain valid independently of the evolution of the epistemic context. Mm. So, according to Kitcher, microbiology is taken to be non-reducible to molecular biology. Mm-hmm ever is the stage of development of biology. And so how can these authors have this um, kind of uh, uh, absolute notion of reducibility or non-reducibility? And if you analyze their uh, arguments at at some stage of of their arguments, you find claims like this is non-reducible because and this is Fodor's uh, claim, because the way the world is put together, so a, met- a metaphysical claim. And in, in uh, Kitcher, that's the same. You find in his argument, ultimately, claims like, this is not uh, reducible because uh, levels of organization in nature. So if you analyze their arguments, you find out that they ultimately appeal to uh, claims about how the world is, but without giving any justification of these claims. So it's like their conclusion about 
reductionism depends on certain metaphysical views about the world, mm-hmm. which is not a problem in itself. I mean, that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong about building a, a philosophical view on metaphysical uh, um, intuitions or claims, but the problem is that uh, if you do that, then it's not, it, it's not, I think, it's not compatible with uh, prescript, prescriptive methodological ambition. Because very often, those anti reductionist uh, authors, they not only uh, claim that a science is not reducible to another one, but they also criticize actual scientific practice and say, no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, adopt, they say to biologists or scientists, you shouldn't adopt uh, metaphysical, uh, sorry, you shouldn't adopt a reductionist approach in your scientific practice. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a problem because uh, how are you going to convince scientists that the metaphysical assumptions, which are at the core of your anti-reductionist views, uh, should be uh, shared also by the scientists. And this is so a limit of the um, methodological ambition or the, met- the prescriptive ambition of anti-reductionist positions. Mm-hmm. You have to choose. If, if, you, if you want to appeal to metaphysical claims, then that doesn't mix well with the taste for uh, prescriptive, uh, mm-hmm. uh, being prescriptive, you know. To what scientists? Right, right. Um, yeah. So, um, and then the the other the other uh, interesting um, point that you make um, in that at at this point in the chapter is um, that you think that you know people like uh, Dupre uh, and and maybe Cartwright um, also go a bit too far in terms of what they conclude. So. Uh, you know, if, if whatever your reason might be that reduction fails, um, uh, even in some more limited sense, as you as you put it, temporarily qualified, right? You know, to a to a scientific, you know, a theory at a time, um, you can't you can't conclude from that that there's this sort of just disorder in the universe or in the world. Um, can, so. That was. Um, could you could you say something about that that argument and? Yes. Um, yeah, because I thought that was that was also a nice contribution as well. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, exactly what you said. I, I criticize this inference, uh, which consists like starting from okay, you can in certain domain of science you can see uh, that reductionism fails. And from that, you conclude that the world is disordered. And this is exactly uh, the inference made by Dupre when he concluded to the failure of reductionism, to the disorder of things. This is the title of his book. And it's a very similar inference made by uh, Cartwright. So, but the problem is, um, well, you have to to go back to the, the very notion, for instance, to the very notion of nomological disorder. What does that mean? For, uh, to have nomological disorder. If you follow Cartwright, that means that the behavior of some bits of the world cannot be accounted, cannot be subsumed under a law, whatever the, the law, whatever the law you are available at that time. Mm-hmm. And 
what I, I might not be able to enter into details, but what I show by a little thought experiment is that the, the fact that you can uh, subsume a certain uh, phenomenon under a law or not will depend on the kind of questions you asked about the system. And for instance, I take the example of the, this is Cartwright example of a, a dollar bill um, in, a, in, a, in a square, you know, when there is wind. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is that an ordered or a disordered system? And Cartwright answers, this is a disordered system because you cannot account for the behavior of a dollar bill swept away by the wind in a square, whatever are the dynamical laws which are available. But I show by a little thought experiment that that depends on the question you ask about the system. And if, you ask, if you're not interested in precise, uh, uh, if you're not in, it depends on the precision of the results you want. And, if you, and so it depends on the question you ask. So there, there's no, it's not meaningful to uh, draw from the failure of prediction some conclusions about the order or the disorder of the world, because those conclusions about the order or the disorder of the world remain dependent on the kind of question you ask about the system. And so uh, that was mainly my, my, my critique of this uh, kind of inference from failure of reductionism to metaphysical contentions about the order or lack of order of the world. Okay, good. That was, um, yeah, that sort of leads to my, my next question or the, the next, uh, which, which kind of goes into the next chapter as well, is this idea of the, what you call, I think, the double dependence or on um, the history or historical, theoretical state of a science at a time, um, and, and then the uh, uh, epistemic interests, you know, what questions we're asking. So could you, could you before I get to more specific questions uh, that, you know, in, in this and, and the next chapter, um, could you say a bit about this dependence of um, ontology, you know, mm -hmm. um, on on our interests? I mean, just to put it in a very blank, you know, sort of bald type of way. Yeah. The, so the, the general framework is the idea that ontology supervenes on, on science. And we, we start with this very, uh, I mean, I think today consensual, uh, naturalized take on ontology. And so if you start with the idea that ontology supervenes on science, then when you ask the question, what bits of experience resist or not being subsumed, being accounted for by a theory, uh, can be shown to be dependent on the question asked. That was my, my previous point, which I, I couldn't mm -hmm. really in more details, but that's the same. Uh, that's the same argument. And so, if you if you you can show that's what I, I, I do in this chapter. You, you can show that the, the the bits of experience you can subsume under a theory will depend on the question asked. And the consequence of that is that the frontiers of the chunk of reality, the the chunk of uh, real things that are the way the theory says they are, uh, become somewhat fuzzy and shifting. So it, depending on which 
theoretical framework you use. Mm. And in addition to that, depending on the kind of question you're going to ask within a given theoretical framework, you will have a double dependency of uh, the answer to the question, what kind of uh, bits of the world I can subsume uh, under the models of my theory. Mm. And that that leads to this double relativity uh, ontological landscape, relativity to the theoretical framework you use, but also relativity within a theoretical framework to the kind of question. But but mm-hmm. this this might not be a, a problem. I mean, uh, usually uh, people who adopt a naturalized take on ontology, they happily accept that the ontological image depends on the uh, theoretical framework used. And, and, and of course, the theoretical framework will evolve in with the history of science. Right. So you have the historicity of the ontological image, which is fine. You don't have the same description in Newtonian mechanics that you have uh, now in uh, Einstein's mechanics. And usually that's fine with everybody. But my point is that in addition to this uh, history, uh, histor- historicity of the ontological image, you have to add a relativity to the questions being asked within the framework. And, and that is a consequence of the, the, my argument I developed uh, in response to Cartwright and all that. Okay, so, so, so I think the question that, that is always rolling around in, in my head at, at, this, at this point of discussion of these issues is, um, are there any constraints on these dependence on interests? I mean, uh, you know, from a you know, say, let's just say a naive realist point of view who would just, you know, let's just say somebody who rejects the dependence or something. Um, you know, there are, you know, there's the ontology and sciences discovering what it's like, um, but it's it's entirely, I mean, let's just to put it extreme, it's mind independent what the, what the world is like. And um, once you start introducing the idea of dependence of uh, ontology, being uh, dependent on, you know, historicity and, and, and our epistemic interests and things like that, um, you know, then the question is how, how dependent is it? I mean, what, what, are there any constraints on this? And if so, does that imply some sort of a, you know, uh, a non-interest relative uh, ontology that's kind of the basis for the rest of it? Maybe I should add to, to, to complete the, the picture is that um, we have to keep in mind that when we want to learn something about the ontology of the world from our best theories, mm-hmm. what we can expect from a theory and the models of the theory is it's it's always, and this is a point, for instance, developed by Paul Taylor, and I really agree with him on that. We should not forget that what you get from successful theories, it's always uh, inexact and idealized uh, ontological descriptions. Uh-huh. And this is a key point. This is a key point because if you if you have in mind that uh, a legitimate epistemic expectation is to get at best, idealized 
ontological pictures, which is which is good enough to do many things, you know. <laughs> so if you keep in mind this uh, idealized uh, dimension of the ontology you get from uh, scientific theories, then the plurality I defend must be combined with this idealized character to get an ontological landscape which will um, which will be pluralist in the sense that it will be a collection of idealized ontological description given by our best theories. But mm -hmm. the, the important point is to see that you can learn a lot about the world by combining these various idealized description. You can learn a lot about, uh, say, water by combining uh, description from uh, atomic physics with description from hydrodynamics. Dynamics. Mm -hmm. In each case, you get idealized ontological description, but you learn a lot about the real system with this perspective, with this uh, specific perspective, ontological perspective. Okay. Um, well, let's, let's turn to the issue of representation, which is what you, you um, cover in the last chapter. Um, and this idea that, in a sense, you just you gave a nice example where you have multiple ways of of describing this or theorizing about the same uh, phenomenon. And um, uh, as you put it, the you know pluralists will generally hold that uh, that these representations are they're partial, um, uh, they're contingent, uh, and they don't converge. They're non-convergent. And and as you just put it now, you might add that they're also idealized to some, they're always, I guess, idealized to some extent. Um, and this is often presented in terms of using a map metaphor, uh, which you critique in an interesting way. Could you, so could you ex explain this, the pluralism about representations and then, you know, some of the problems with the, the map metaphor that's used? Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, because when I yeah, because many many uh, many forms of uh, many kinds of representation in science today are of another kind than uh, laws and theories. You have computer simulation, explanatory mechanism, taxonomic systems. So there are other ways of representing uh, the world. So mm -hmm. the fact, is, yes, in, in this part of my book, I focus on these other forms of scientific representations. And when you consider that, the, you face very often in uh, you face very often situations of plurality of this kind of scientific representations. So in this uh, chapter of my book, my my question is, uh, what what is the epistemic attitude we should have? What is the right epistemic expectation we should have when facing this situation of uh, representational? Plurality, and that's where the map analogy is helpful to uh, reconcile this plurality with uh, realist expectation. Because if you think about uh, what it means for a map to represent the object, take for instance the example. This is Kitcher example of the Britannicos, for instance. Uh, depending on your interest, you will not represent the Britannicos in the same way if you want to uh, sail or if you want to walk or if you want to drive a car and all that. But so the, nevertheless, so you always have partial 
representation of the given of a given system. Nevertheless, you can be realist about this partial representation to the extent that in each case you can draw um, true proposition about your system. If you use a, a map um, to drive, you, you know if your map is accurate if you are successful when you try to drive from one point to another. If you are successful when you drive, then you can uh, infer that you have an accurate representation, for instance, of the direction of uh, uh, indicated on your map. So you can be realist about a certain aspect of the representation delivered by the map. Mm-hmm. But, the, but my point, and that's where the critical part uh, comes in, mm-hmm. my point is that it's not so uh, straightforward in the scientific case. What is not straightforward is to be able to infer from your practical success when you use a model, a computer simulation. Uh, you, you can't infer so easily from this practical success. The truth of the propositions you can draw from the models or the computer simulations. And this is what I try to show when I um, discuss, uh, when I have this case study in astrophysics about computer simulation. My point is to show that uh, you can build uh, those computer simulations which will be very empirically successful. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, you have good reason to be uh, very, um, not to be too optimistic as regards their ability to represent in a realistic way the uh, real system, uh, in that case, a galaxy or or something like that. So so my point was to say that, okay, the the map analogy is very convincing um, as regards the compatibility between realism and uh, the existence of a plurality of representation. But when it comes in science to um, computers, certain kinds of models and computer simulations, not all, all of them, but certain kinds of computer simulation of composite complex system, the analogy is not so successful anymore with map analogy because you, you can't be uh, so uh, confident in the uh, realistic virtue of your model, even if the model is empirically successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of different questions that, you know, you know, I'm always kind of curious about the, the sort of that, the, the way realism kind of fits into the overall picture there. How exactly does this realism uh, get any purchase uh, within, within the, at least the pluralist views as you've put them forward? I think it's really important to not to draw too general conclusion about that. My analysis uh, was really focused on certain kinds of models and computer simulation, but which are more and more uh, common in science today because because of the capability of uh, computers. It's in many branches of science, people develop very uh, rich and very realistic model of a phenomenon. And the case I the case I analyze in my book is the computer simulation in cosmology. Mm-hmm. So you have this uh, computer, very realistic computer simulation, realistic in the sense that they deliver images that really looks like 
images you would get from real observations. But the question is, okay, those computer simulations deliver some very realistic, in that sense, description of the phenomenon under study, but to what extent can you trust, or can you trust, or to what extent can you, um, do you have good reasons to believe that they actually describe how the system is and not only uh, successful in predictions? And so the, in that kind of computer simulations, my point and my claim is that uh, those kind of scientific inquiries succeeds only in delivering plausible story about a phenomenon, which which is very interesting, but that shouldn't be confused with um, a realist, that shouldn't be uh, uh, confused with realist expectations about uh, uh, the, the description of the systems. Mm. Well, we are, we are sort of running out of time. Um, although there's, I mean, you have a very nice, interesting case at the end where you talk about the taxonomy uh, classif classification of stars, which of course is your, you know, bringing your astrophysics background. Um, but uh, because we're sort of running out of time, I just wanted to end with one final question about uh, what you're working on now and what your what your next project uh, will be. First, I, I'm working. I'm, I'm still working on style of scientific reasoning, and more specifically, I'm I'm trying to. Uh, find out if computer simulations, which are which are very widespread in science today, do they constitute a new style of scientific reasoning? Uh -huh. That means, do they constitute a, a new way of finding out about the world in in addition to the to the experimental style, in addition to the theoretical uh, uh, inquiry? So, um, and I, I tend I think that the, the answer is yes. That Computer simulation does constitute a, a new style of reasoning in hacking sense, a new way to find out about the world, hmm. and introduces new objects and new standard of validity and all that. So I'm, I'm trying to to uh, argue for a positive answer to, to that question. And I, and I also uh, work in, um, in line with my book, I also work on the compatibility between uh, pluralism, scientific pluralism, and a naturalized approach in metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to conclude that you can't have it both ways. If, uh -huh. if you take into account development in philosophy of science, such as scientific pluralism, then uh, maybe a naturalized approach in metaphysics is not so um, uh, promising anymore. Huh. And eventually... Um, I also work, uh, and this is uh, clearly the influence of Philip Kitcher, who was my advisor at Columbia. I also work on political dimensions of science. And for instance, I have a, a collective project on uh, at the interface of political philosophy and uh, science uh, policies, which is about um, should we try to democratize uh, the setting of research agenda and should we try to involve citizens in the choice of big research priorities? So this mm -hmm. is something quite different, which I'm uh, working on uh, now. Very interesting. Well, all, all three of those projects sound sound very, very interesting, and I, I look forward to, to reading about them. But for, for the moment, we, we are out of time, so I just want to thank you once again for, for taking the time to talk with, with us at New Books in Philosophy. 
Well, thank you very much. It was very nice to talk with you. Good luck with those projects, and um, we will uh, look forward to, to reading about them. You've been listening to my interview with Stephanie Ruffi, Professor of Philosophy at the Université Grenoble-Alpes in France. We've been talking about her new book, Scientific Pluralism Reconsidered, A New Approach to the Disunity of Science, which is just out from University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you once again for listening. Thank you.